You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. It is arguably the most coveted position in human history. With it comes power unlike any other, along with unparalleled vision, access, and control. The one who claims that position gains control of the radio, the air conditioner, the heater, the sunroof. They have close access to the driver, and they have a clear view through the front windshield because it is better known as riding shotgun. As Michael Scott, Steve Carell's character in The Office, says, the rules of shotgun are very simple. The first persons to call shotgun when inside of the vehicle gets to sit in the front seat. In our reading this morning, James and John take Jesus aside, and according to one clever commentator, they call shotgun. Allow one of us, they ask, to sit on your right and the other on your left when you enter your glory. James and John boldly ask for positions of power as this whole kingdom of God thing plays out in their future. And while it's easy for us to criticize them from our perspective, I want to suggest that we try not to be too hard on them. I mean, we all want to be somebody, don't we? It's a very human impulse from that first temptation in the Garden of Eden when the serpent says, when you eat of the tree of good and evil, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Or think of Marlon Brando's famous line, I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody in On the Waterfront. That desire to have some importance in this world is deep within us. There's a wonderful Calvin and Hobbes comic in which Calvin is standing alone at night, staring up at the stars, and he yells, I am significant. And in the next scene, he's still standing there, surrounded by darkness, stars, and silence. And then in the final frame, he looks down and says in a quiet voice, screamed the dust speck. We may not always act on it, but we certainly understand those aspirations of James and John, that desire to grab hold of our destiny, to make a name for ourselves. It is a desire, however, that's fraught with danger. The writer Henry Nowen says that ever since that first encounter in the Garden of Eden, we've been tempted to replace love with power. He writes, quote, the long painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, 
being a leader over being led, end quote. Oh, and we've had some doozies of power grabs in church history, haven't we? From those big stories that make it into the history books, the great schism of the 14th century when there were three popes vying for control, making alliances, scheming with royal forces to obtain the backing, both political and military, to assert their claim on authority. And I think most of us can name ministers who ended up being seduced by power. Some horrifically news-making stories like Jim Jones and the 909 people who died by suicide or murder in Jonestown in 1978. But there are even more and more smaller tragic stories that never make the headlines. And it's not just big political intrigue either. Perhaps you've been a part of one of those churches with its own set of power dramas. Maybe folks who have been in control for a very, very long time who do not want to let go. Whether it's the ladies of the altar guild or the regulars on the property committee. A clergy friend of mine once stirred up a hornet's nest of church protest when she wanted, of all things, to replace the old curtains in the women's restroom. And in another congregation I was a part of, there was a yearly tug of war between the children's ministry, which held an Easter egg hunt on the church lawn, and the property team members who insisted on an extra short mow of the lawn two days before the event. When I was growing up, my, my home church had a large Sunday school group that was called the couples class. And it was the biggest class at the time, and they had taken over the old fellowship hall that was in the basement of the education wing of the church, and they had a kitchen all to themselves that was adjacent to that old fellowship hall. And they held their own coffee hour before class began that was separate from the larger church coffee hour that was upstairs in the new fellowship hall. And they put locks on all the cabinets in that old kitchen to lock up their coffee supplies so no one else could use them. No kid could come in and sneak a sugar cube before church, and none of those AA members who met midweek in the building would have any coffee supplies. I'm not sure they truly understood the idea of hospitality and welcome, but they had power over cans of Folgers and boxes of sugar cubes. When the subject of power comes up, the church always finds ways to sidestep the issue, to deflect and say, oh, oh, that's not us. We don't have issues with power in church. Sometimes we dress it up in fancy church language. We may call it servant leadership. But too often it's that same old top-down leadership just with a different, nicer name. James and John asked to be Jesus' right-hand men, his go-to guys, and the Greek word used here for ask has a sense of determination or craving. So we need to see it not as just a simple request, but perhaps the start of a negotiation process. They are bold and they are strategic in their approach. And Jesus responds, you don't know what you're asking. And it would almost be funny if it wasn't so tragic. 
In Mark's gospel, after all, Jesus is crystal clear what is about to happen to him. He's given a warning to his disciples saying the human one must suffer many things and be rejected by elders, chief priests, and legal experts and be killed and then after three days rise from the dead. And Mark tells us he said this plainly. And he gives this warning not once, not even twice, but three times. And each time it's painfully clear that the disciples do not understand. And Mark wants us to feel the irony in this encounter between what they're asking for and what is going to happen. Jesus hears out James and John asking questions and finds out that they want more. They're seeking entitlements. They're looking for more honor. And they see standing alongside Jesus as a pathway for their own prestige. And so in response, Jesus says, you know, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or receive the baptism I received? And our reading from the Common English Bible today has the two of them responding, we can. But I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in his message translation. He writes, sure, why not? And I think Peterson reflects the irony in this story with that naive and slightly flippant response. Sure, why not? And perhaps they truly think so in that moment. I mean, after all, how hard can it be? Jesus is rocking Galilee. Things are good. Giving is up. The crowds are big. Of course we can handle this. We got all the skills we need. Oh, James and John, we're with you. I mean, when things are going well and everything is looking up, yeah, sure, why not? But like James and John, so often in the moment, we don't see the complexities that may arise. And we can't predict the pitfalls, the challenges that await us. In the warm glow of success, we can only imagine the glory, that fleeting glory of the moment. When Jesus asks, are you able? Honestly, we cannot truly know the depths of that question. How much the way will ask of us. How the twists and turns of the journey will challenge our very best intentions that will make us falter. That will pull away the veil on our vulnerabilities and open us up to failures. Are we capable of drinking from the cup that Jesus drinks? It's a question Mark offers to us strategically to give us, the reader, pause. There's a strain of Christianity commonly known as the prosperity gospel that feeds on this desire for power and success we have. You know the ones, the preachers, they're not hard to find on TV. Their books line the shelves of Christian living sections. They take the words of the gospel and they twist them into something that Jesus could never have imagined. They are what we might think of as Christianized self-help gurus, taking the idea of God's love for us, God's very real love for us, and twisting it with a bit of American narcissism and creating a false gospel. A gospel which proclaims that God wants great things for you, which God does, but probably not the great things we might be dreaming of. 
They proclaim that God wants to give you prosperity, financial security, happiness, self-fulfillment. You name the desire and that all we need to do is claim these promises and the world will be ours. It is a perversion of the good news of Jesus of Nazareth. We've had the seed faith messages of Oral Roberts in the 20th century, of Joel Olstein and Paula Wyatt and Creflo Dollar, to name a few of them. And I know Creflo Dollar embodies that more flamboyant strain of this prosperity gospel. He once said, I own two Rolls Royces and I didn't pay a dime for them. Why? Because while I'm pursuing the Lord, those cars are pursuing me. Which may cause us to roll our eyes. He may be a larger-than-life caricature of the prosperity gospel, but that impulse toward naming success as the goal of Christian life can be found in all sorts of religious spaces. So be very careful. No, I'd say run in the opposite direction when you hear such a gospel proclaimed. When we read the gospels, we see that Jesus had no concept of the latest self-improvement movement, of any promises of there being seven steps to living at your best potential. But he looks at James and John, he hears their question, and beneath it he sees their desire to follow, imperfect as it was, and he called them to join him. Not into a life of prosperity, but to the way of the cross. He goes on to tell his disciples, whoever wants to be great among you will be your slave, and whoever wants to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the human one didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. You see, Jesus is opening up a space for them to join their hearts with his, to reach deep within themselves, to find the source of connection with the divine compassion of God, which Jesus embodied. Now, sometimes we Christians hear these words and we seem to think Jesus is doing something brand new here, that he's creating a totally new way of living, a Christian way of being in the world. But that's an ahistorical way of reading Jesus. And it leaves out his own spiritual and religious context. The way that Jesus describes is not some novel path here. We need to see that Jesus is a voice in a long line of prophets, that his understanding of power is deeply rooted in Israel's history within Judaism. Our first reading this morning from Isaiah is part of what is called the Fourth Servant Song. Those are some poems that are contained within the book of Isaiah, some of which are written from the viewpoint of God, such as, in Isaiah 42, which reads, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Some of the servant songs are written from the point of view of the servant. We can look at Isaiah 50, which reads, The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Ours today is a mix of people speaking. So you hear the people saying, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have all turned to our own way. 
And then we hear God speaking as well. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, there's been a long debate among Old Testament scholars concerning who or what is the servant that's referred to in these four different songs in Isaiah. In some places, it's clear that Israel has been the one that's been called God's servant. In other texts, it seems possible that the servant might be the prophets or even Isaiah himself. And then in other poems, it seems to be referring to a particular king or ruler. And for us as Christians, it's nearly impossible to hear these words of Isaiah and not think of Jesus. And those first followers of Jesus, known as people of the way, were trying to understand what had happened who Jesus was, and what his crucifixion and resurrection meant for their lives. And so they themselves gravitated to these passages from their own religious tradition. And we can see that the gospel passion narratives were deeply shaped by these images of the servant of the Lord from Isaiah. And the Apostle Paul was influenced by them as well. In fact, the writer of Luke Acts uses this passage from Isaiah as the one in which the Ethiopian eunuch needs assistance from Philip to interpret before he asks for baptism. Now, whomever the prophet originally intended is lost to us. And while on one hand that can be frustrating, the ambiguity can also be freeing. The poem is open-ended for us. We may hear it collectively as a people, individually as a leader of a faith community, and we can also see it in the example of Jesus. Each of those interpretations opens up a rich opportunity for spiritual discernment. All we like sheep have gone astray. Not one of us can make it on our own, can we? Each of us carries with us some brokenness, some bits of regret. It is a very human story to be astray. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. That can be understood as suffering on behalf of others, yes, but in it we can see the harsh realities also of suffering at the hands of others in their wrongdoing. How the innocent often suffer from the hands of others. That's also our human story. The servant of God in Isaiah suffers alongside the people in solidarity with them, joining in their troubles, bearing the weight of the oppression that is destroying them. The writer declares the people misunderstood the suffering of the servant they saw, writing, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. They didn't see their own part in his suffering, that his suffering was because of their misdeeds. Another very human reaction, our inclination to absolve ourselves of responsibility. And relatedly, we often overlook the potential in those who suffer. The writer of Isaiah points to the people not seeing the hand of God upon the servant when he says, who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living. 
So it's from this rich tradition in Isaiah that the gospel writers found in, inspiration for their telling of Jesus' story and Jesus' vision of leadership. Indeed, what it meant to be a human being in relationship to others is firmly rooted in Isaiah's words. In Jesus, we see a leadership from below. We see a leadership crafted by servanthood, leading by example. It's a reimagining of power through weakness, of a deep connection he has with those who have been cast aside and forgotten. It's that paradox of leadership we seldom seem to understand when Jesus tells them all that you know that the ones who are considered the rulers by the Gentiles, they show off their authority and their high-ranking officials order them around. But that's not the way it will be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your slave. For the human one didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. Now, I'm a little late to the game, but recently I've started watching Ted Lasso, which is a TV series on Apple TV+. And it tells the story of Ted Lasso, who's a seemingly hapless American football coach, who has some success coaching the Wichita State Shockers to a Division II NCAA championship. And then out of the blue, he's hired to manage a fictional English Premier League soccer team, AFC Richmond. Of course, the joke is that Lasso knows absolutely nothing about European football, but over time we begin to see that Lasso knows a great deal about human beings and about leadership. In the first episode, he meets the equipment manager, Nathan, and he shocks him by asking his name. And a little later in the show, Lasso comments, you continue to impress, Nathan. To which the kit manager responds, you remembered my name? And Lasso ends up, over time, calling him Nate the Great. And he moves him from kit manager to assistant coach because he recognizes the manager's extensive knowledge of the game and how Nate the Great makes the team better. And throughout the season, Lasso's approach is to invite people in, to widen the circle of inclusion. And he sees the gifts of all who are around the team, and he encourages all of them to contribute. And in those who are hostile to him, he still sees potential in them. And he's consistently open and vulnerable to forming relationships. Over time, we see him recognizing woundedness, and he doesn't recoil from others' pain, but he keeps the path of relationship open, and he invites others in over and over again. In an interview with one of the writers of the show, Jason Sudeikis, who plays Lasso, he said, Ted is egoless. He allows for people to be themselves and reflect what they think he is, but really what they are. Jesus is inviting his disciples to see in him another kind of spiritual leadership, one that doesn't dominate, one that doesn't define itself by the world's understanding of success, 
one that is shaped and formed by giving up, by giving up the seduction of power and taking on the role of a servant. Jesus says if we're following him, we're going to be taking his same cup, sharing in a future that involves stepping out in faith into the unknown without any guarantee of success by the world's standards. Jesus says when we're sharing in his same baptism, we're saying yes to a way of being in the world which claims there is a oneness in humanity which unites us, that our hearts recognize our connections with one another and with the earth. When we jump to call shotgun with Jesus, that means we're wrapping that towel around our waist too and setting aside any desires to control others as we kneel to wash the feet of our neighbors. We're saying yes to taking up that same cross wherever it may lead, most often to a life which makes little sense in our world that judges us by the size of our houses, the newness of our cars, and the prestige of our career paths. The truth is we know in our bones that this way of Jesus is not easy. We understand that servant leadership, true service to others, often may be viewed as weakness and will probably never bring us rewards or accolades. But it will bring us closer, closer to the way of the servant song in Isaiah, to the one who joins alongside us, who bears our infirmities to the one who was wounded by humanity's selfish choices, who was crushed by the iniquities of the world, who was oppressed and afflicted by the powers of this world which seek recognition and domination. It's in the serving. It's in the serving we come to know that we see the face of the liberating God, the Holy One who bears us up, who suffers alongside us and who partners with us to bring restoration. And it is then that we will know true freedom. We will find ourselves seeing the beauty that God sees in the world, living the compassion which God has for humanity, tending to the earth as those who know the heart of God. May it be so. May it be so. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.